Now I'm ready. Everyone has a Bible. All right, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, and I'm going to read it first, the whole chapter, and we're going to tie it into tonight, I want to talk a little bit about praying for our leaders, praying for our leaders. All right, Revelation 12, praying for our leaders. Uh, Here we go. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and 10 horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them out to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male, uh, some translations say a male child, or, who is uh, to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, by the way. Um, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him, that is the accuser of the brethren, because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished in a, for a time uh, in times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be fled away with the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river 
which the dragon poured out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, there are five major schools of thought in how to interpret the book of Revelation. We are not going to go into all five of those tonight. Uh, if you're interested in that subject, uh, a good coverage of that is by a guy named Paul Thigpen, who wrote a book called The Rapture Trap. And Paul Thigpen is, uh, was a uh, nominally Protestant evangelical who uh, encountered Christ, but uh, became a Roman Catholic and became quite an excellent uh, author and uh, studier of scripture and church history. And he basically wrote the book to kind of expose the fact that the whole rapture idea is a completely modern idea. No one ever heard of it till 1830. Uh, it was first invented by a cult called the Millerites, and it was picked up by evangelical Christians after the Civil War. But um, that's not at all my point here. But he does cover the five major ways of looking at Revelation in one of the chapters, and I have the book if you want to borrow it just for that chapter or so. Uh, not all the book is that good, but certain parts are excellent. He covers the different millennial positions, uh, although I would recommend to you R.C. Sproul's book uh, on, if you want to look at the different millennial positions called uh, The Last Days According to Jesus, which is actually on our intermediate recommended book list. So nonetheless, I just want to just tell you two, two ways of looking at Revelation that we endorse here at Grace Christian Fellowship. One is called a partial preterist viewpoint. And uh, a partial preterist viewpoint basically says that Revelation, like the Mount Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25, and the Mount Olivet Discourse repeated in Mark 14, and I forget the chapter it's in in, in Luke, that, that all of that pertains to what happened to the Jews when they began to rebel against the Roman government in 67 AD, and the uprising was progressively put down by, by Titus, who became the emperor later, but he was the emperor's son at that point. Uh, I think the emperor was Flavius or something like that. I forget now. And uh, um, m most, you know, I'm from the, the persuasion that... Uh, Revelation was primarily a revelation of the ascended, reigning, ruling on the throne, Jesus Christ, encouraging the Christians that God raises up emperors and tears down emperors, and he raises up nations and tears down nations. And just like the kingdom of Satan had been embodied in Egypt in the person of Pharaoh, and it had been embodied in Babylon and, and many of its rulers and, and Darius the Mede and so forth, uh, that this present manifestation of the, of the kingdom of Satan embodied in the Roman Empire with Julius Caesar calling himself king of kings and lord of lords, that, and with you being required to, to worship Caesar, or that because that, the, a great persecution was, uh, had gotten underway in 64 AD under Nero, uh, that continued, uh, had worse times, like in Diocletian's time, all the way to 313 A.D. when, when uh, the Emperor Constantine 
edict what issued what in 313 AD issued what was called the um, edict of Constantine. It's also called the edict of toleration or the edict of Milan because he was in the city of Milan when he issued it. But it basically made Christianity legal for the first time in the Roman Empire officially stopped persecuting Christians. The uh, the persecution you read about in the New Testament is actually most, mostly from the Jews and the Judaizers up until the later parts of the New Testament when it, when it becomes more from the Roman government. And Revelation is written to re, re, remind the Christians that God is still in charge even though they're about to go through a great time. Now, it's a revelation, even though it's apocryphal literature, uh, therefore it's, which means it's high on symbolism. If you know all the symbolism of the Old Testament, it's like we've been talking about on Sunday mornings recently, uh, then it makes great sense. So, so the first view is just really what you would call the partial preterist view. In other words, it's not a futurist view. That's one of the five. A futurist view is what sells all these great books. You can, you can make much more money on a futurist view <laughs> in today's, uh, because even though the futurist view really hasn't been that popular in church history, it became popular again after the Civil War, and it has grown to the point where about 95% of Bible-believing Christians uh, follow the futurist view. Uh, I, hope my, I hope those numbers are too high but I fear they might not be. Um, so um, with that in mind, uh, there's another way of looking at, at, at uh, Revelation and indeed all biblical prophecy. And that's the idea uh, that it has both a double fulfillment and an eter eternal fulfillment. And that's the sense of this, because there's one God and there's one set of spiritual principles working in the universe, and so forth, many of the things that are prophesied in Scripture happen uh, have more than one fulfillment. So God promised Abraham that uh, in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed, and that was fulfilled in Isaac, but then it was fulfilled in, uh, in the sons of Jacob, that is the nation of Israel, and the, the nation of Israel is a biblical metaphor for Christ. Out of Egypt I called my son applies both to the experience of Israel and to Christ. Uh, and it applies to all of us spiritually, right? We, uh, we all get called out of Egypt, speaking in the Egypt representing the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of this world and, it's, and so forth and, and our being in bondage to our sin and so forth. So... Uh, scripture has layers of fulfillment of prophecy. And of course, the seed that Abraham was promised was, was Christ. <laughs> so is it Isaac? Is it Christ? Yes. <laughs> so um, so looking, what I want to basically say tonight, from looking from Revelation 12, I don't want to go, I actually had a series that I'll maybe reteach someday called the Revelation 12 series, which was four 90-minute messages, and uh, we're not going to do that tonight. <laughs> uh, however, I do want to just, from, I just want to say that in a way, all the things, if you're standing up in heaven, 
We are seated at the Father's right hands in, in heavenly places. Both Ephesians and Colossians tell us that, right? Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. We are, we are seated with him in Christ, Ephesians 2, 6. And I forget the exact reference in Colossians, but um, in heavenly places. So, um, and we know that eternity is not a long, long, long time. Eternity is outside and above time. It's Jesus defined eternal life in John 17, 3. The Bible has to always interpret the Bible. This is eternal life that they might know thee. He's praying to the Father. It's his part of his great high priestly prayer. We're going to look at other parts of it if we get far enough tonight. And in his great high priestly prayer, this is eternal life that they might know thee, that is God the Father, the only true God, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That brings you into eternal life, which is a spiritual present reality in your spirit when you're born again. You don't get born again theoretically. You get born again actually. Your spirit actually becomes able to hear God when it couldn't hear God. God begins to renew your conscience, and all the aspects of your spirit is the first place in a way that your salvation begins to work, starts in your spirit, works its way out to your soul, your affections, your emotions, your mind, your thinking, and eventually, you know, into your body, uh, although our bodies will not be completely redeemed until they're sown into the ground and raised again as a new body, like a seed sprouting, right? So um, from an eternal point, if you could kind of look at this from an eternal point of view, this is the spiritual warfare that's always going on in the earth. Revelation 12 uh, was true in the Garden of Eden. It's true in the destruction of Jerusalem. It's true today. Okay, so um, whenever you, just to give you, I don't want to give you a lot of the symbolism, but the sand of the seashore in the, in the Bible, the, the coastlands, the sand of the seashore, uh, there's a couple metaphors there. The sand has to do with God promising Abraham that all of his his descendants would be like the sand of the seashore. If you could count them, uh, if you could count all the kernels of sand on on a on a beach, good luck with that project. Um, <laughs> so you could know how many uh, sons of Abraham uh, in in both covenant periods there really are. Wow, get back to me when you finish that project, William. <laughs> Let me know what you came up with. But um, uh, also the coastlands are always representative of taking the kingdom, the gospel, to the nations. Thank you. So in this particular case, um, this is basically talking about the kingdom coming to the whole earth. And the beast, of course, represents uh, evil and who knows? There's all these ideas about the beast. Um, I don't want to focus on any of that. What I really want to just focus is, on is this. Um, Satan is is revealed here in these passages because uh, I don't I can't go into detail on this whole thing or will take too much time. He's basically uh, revealed in some of his nature. Um, he opens his mouth to speak arrogant blasphemies against God, look at verse 5 and 6, and uh, to make war against the saints and resist the kingdom of God, etc. Um, but I want you to look at the verse where it says, um, I think it's verse 12, isn't it? 
Nope. Um, uh, it talks about how he deceives the whole nation, and we're going to... Nations. Where's the verse that I'm looking for? That Verse 10, is it? Or, where it calls him the accuser that our brethren has been thrown down. Verse 10, okay. Um, my eyes are getting bad on my own. If, oh, never, no, you know what happened? My Bible's on the wrong page. I was like, no wonder I can't find what I'm looking for. Okay. Um, okay, so the, the, oh boy, we'll have to, you know what? We'll have to go back and edit this because I was actually talking about verse 13, verse 1 there for a while. Somebody should have stopped me. What are you doing? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Someone should have said, what are you talking about? Hello. So anyway, I my bait, my uh, Bible was on the wrong page there. And I'm thinking, I'm like, I I'm like, I, I'm, I can't find any of the verses I'm talking about here. <laughs> so hopefully we can go back and kind of mark the time now and go back. And then we'll have, to, uh, you'll have to get Jordan to show you how to edit these things, Stephen. Okay. All right, so going back to Revelation 12, 1. Should we just start over? Boy, whatever. Uh, that's disappointing. Craziness. Um, all right, so a great sign appears in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. So Bible speak, I uh, wish we could go into all this stuff. 12 being the number of the government of Israel, stars speaking of spiritual government, the woman speaking of God's uh people because God is the husband and the all through the Bible the Old Testament and new we are the bride of Christ you know uh, Hosea is told to marry a harlot because as a symbol of God's covenant love toward his wife and his wife's total unfaithfulness so the woman is is the church okay in this the woman is the people of God and God is is they're living in a, it, at the final stages of what the New Testament calls the last days, which isn't about the second coming of Christ, but it's about the last days of God's dealings with Israel and his establishing his new people on the earth, the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, right? So the last days, according to Jesus, are what this is talking about that happened between 67 and 70 AD. The last days for the nation of Israel. And, of course, the sun and the moon are other metaphors of Jesus is a metaphor of the sun, and, and the church is a metaphor of the moon reflecting his light and so forth. So notice this. All I'm trying to get at here is the woman is with child, and she cries out in pain to give birth. Okay. So what I want you to get out of this and help, help you to understand is this. The church is always giving birth to the next generation of the church. And the Bible mixes metaphors all the time. And the church is given the authority of Christ. So the church is actually the woman who gives birth to the church the male child who's destined to rule the nations, right? And, of course, Christ is the ultimate male child who was born of a woman whose destiny is to rule the nations, right? So it's both symbolic of Christ and it's symbolic of we as the body of Christ. 
And all I want you to uh, be clear on is that all this stuff about Michael and his angels and, da, 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 and the serpent of old and so forth, Satan most moves to stop the next move of God coming forth. He doesn't really care that much about the monuments that movements have a tendency to become at, sometimes after a generation, sometimes after a century, whatever. But um, what he opposes is the birth of God's purpose, and especially if it has b real biblical authority in it. Now, we could talk a lot about what makes for biblical authority, biblical faithfulness, uh, biblical fillings of the Holy Spirit. Um, but one of the characteristics is there's, and we're not going to go far with this, but there's this whole thing of complementarianism versus egalitarianism, which you're going to study in the theology class. And Satan, elite, you know, uh, radically opposes anything that's going to restore men to being responsible servant leaders as Christ taught on servant leadership. Now, you can have your modern crud all you want, but Jesus had 12 disciples that he named as apostles who were men. Now, Jesus greatly elevated the role of women in ancient times. Speaking to the woman at the well was an amazingly radical thing to do. She was a Samaritan. Jews didn't speak to... <laughs> You know, he basically leads, he leads a Samaritan into salvation, right? And uh, men don't talk with women in public in that day and age. And uh, he elevates the whole status of womanhood, just as Paul talks about that in Christ, there's neither male or female. So the complementarian position is simply this. Men and women have no difference in terms of value to God. they have quite a bit of difference in terms of the roles and functions there to play in his kingdom. Now, I probably shouldn't even have got in this. I probably, we're probably not going to post this one on the website. <laughs> it's too controversial. But, um, you know, people hate the truth in our day and age. But um, about a lot of things. So anyway, um, especially Christians. But uh, <laughs> First Thessalonians 2.15, those who perish because they receive not a love for the truth. Loving truth is not a, a, a deep part of our culture, that's for sure. Anyway, so um, Satan opposes, and Satan has a hierarchy, has a kingdom, Ephesians 6. There's, you know, so he has, uh, people are always saying that, um, you know, the devil was giving me a hard time. The devil never gave Bob or Anbesh a hard time. He's not omniscient, and he's probably never heard of either of them. But you can bet that in his whole hierarchy of principalities, powers, demons, and so forth, there are different ones assigned to his case, to those cases, so to speak. And, you know, the, the, the fun little novel, C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters, is a kind of like speculations on how uh, an older demon might help a younger underling disciple them to keep the Christ person from becoming a Christian in the first place or from growing in Christ or whatever. Kind of fun. But the point is, is that Satan doesn't just, isn't out there in just some crazy random way. He is primarily focused against 
God. And the first name of Satan is Satan, which means the adversary. He knows more about God's kingdom purpose than 99.99% of Christians today. And so he is actually, the, the way the satanic hierarchy works is like um, some little church over in Podunk versus some mega church, Satan may be focusing more of its resources if God has a destiny for those people. Can you understand what I'm saying there? Um, because apparently from what you read in his appearances before God in Job 1 and 2 and Zechariah 3, apparently he has some insight in what, into what's going on with God's angels and the kingdom and so forth. And he, he, you know, he didn't just uh, treat the temptations of Jesus like, uh, like he would just any old guy, right? He focused his entire—Satan himself came— to, to tempt Jesus and to follow Jesus. And he spent his entire life looking for an opportune trying to try to get him to fall. And that's, so these things are, these things are hierarchical. And so all I, I hope I want you to see is if, if we have a calling in our life that I think we do, whatever's born of God overcomes the world, but it also means we have more spiritual warfare directed to us if we're going to go move forward and go on the offensive. And if God has a destiny of actually raising up godly men who will be servant leaders and faithful husbands to their wives and to their children and servant leaders and faithful leaders in the church, and if we understand some, you know, as we talk about restoring the, the sevenfold gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, ministries, and helps, Satan is going to oppose that more than, just, than some church that... Um, is off on all sorts of things that's not going to end up accomplishing much in the end. I don't think we will put this on the website, by the way. Because, you know, that could be interpreted as arrogance, or it could be right. <laughs> uh, I personally have felt for a long time like a great deal of the spiritual warfare in Dayton is is directed towards uh, Grace Christian Fellowship not not breaking forth. That's why we need these prayer meetings. And really, though, I'm going, I probably shouldn't have gone into all this. But notice that at the end of the chapter, uh, notice some other characteristics of Satan first, then make sure I get to the end of the chapter. Um, the whole thing about his, the third of the stars that swept the heaven, you know, theologians estimate that possibly... Um, you know, about one-third of the angels followed him. And notice that she gave birth to a son who is to rule all the nations. Cross-reference that later with Psalm 2 and with Christ. And, you know, we were caught up, Ephesians 2, 2 we we're, were seated, we're caught up to the throne of God and so forth. Now, so I want you to know a couple things about the characteristics of Satan. Uh Paul tells us that you that we are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes, right? Just like God, the first place to know what the purposes of God are and what he's doing is to study the attributes of God. Actually, all true interpretations of Scripture 
come out of what Scripture reveals about the mind of God, the heart of God, the, per the person of God, the nature of God. That's why in theology, they put the attributes of God right toward the front of the course. <laughs> right? So, likewise, all of Satan's workings come out of his character. I have, on, on a few times, had occasion to know a person well enough that someone said this or that person did this and that, and I just said, no, he didn't. That's not who he is. He's not capable of that. Now, it's rare to know someone that deep. But uh, so some things, you know, now, I don't think you should be knowing all sorts of things about the occult and from a curiosity point of view. But from a warfare point of view, yes. The, in, if you look at the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 to the seven churches, one of the uh, Jesus gives praise to one of the churches because they have not known the deep things of Satan as they're known. I've known a lot of Christians who go from not being aware of the reality of the demonic and how spiritual life really is and, and how much, and you know, their eyes are kind of open. Like when Elijah prayed for Elisha and said, open his eyes to see that more are those that are with us. You know, the, the truth is there's hundreds of spiritual beings in this room right now. And uh, so, you know, you could, but when you get aware of that, you can kind of get weird. I, I don't really know how to guide you too much on that, but you can get spend too much time meditating on the nature of darkness and, you know, and, you know, there's a demon behind every toaster syndrome, I call it, <laughs> you know, and I've known Christians are like, you're using that peanut butter. Don't you know that the Procter and Gamble symbol is, is, uh, some is a Satan worship symbol. I'm like, what, <laughs> you know, uh, well, it actually happens to be a moon and some stars that happen to also be biblical symbols. So let's redeem it. <laughs> the Lord sanctified his peanut butter and let's eat it. But, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, anyway, I'm getting a little silly here, but so Satan is the adversary. He's, He's not just indiscriminate in the way he goes about tempting you. He's primarily going to try to get you off the, off the track of God for the big things of your life. Right? He wants you to make the wrong vocational choices. He wants you to join the wrong church. He wants you to marry the wrong person. He wants you to rock, walk covenantally in the things of the Lord with the wrong team and the wrong people. Got that? Next, he's, he's uh, besides being called that, he's called the devil. And the devil is the, actually the word in Greek, diabolos. And it means slanderer. And that's why it says the accuser of our brethren has been thrown got down who accuses them before God day and night. Now, he's not just an idiot, and he doesn't just do that randomly. Let me tell you some of the ways he accuses you, leading up to the most important one. One is he accuses you to you. That's why I've been on this Philemon 1-6 thing, and I, uh, I want you to be humble. I want you to realize 
how deep your sin problem is, how much you need grace, but I don't want you walking around in, in condemnation. There's a huge, we're actually going to do a teaching hopefully this summer on the difference between conviction and condemnation. I don't want to develop it too much now, but conviction is very specific and it's uplifting and challenging for you. Whereas condemnation is just vague in general and I'm just a no good worthless worm that you know and there's nothing specific to to work on there <laughs> there there's just it's just all this uh false guilt and false shame because it's actually based on being performance based in your mind you're basically saying i should have been better i should be better and once you get really get the depth of your sin and take grace you know like you're you have to become comfortable with your humanity Part of my humanity is that for some reasons, God has put these tremendous gifts in me and insights and wisdom and talent. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And part of me is I'm probably the most, one of the most disappointing Christians I've ever met. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and that's, and you gotta, you, you have to live with that. You're human. Uh, now you don't want to make peace with uh, your sin. But on the other hand, you have to kind of, some people get too spiritual. Like in Ecclesiastes, it says, do not be excessively righteous. Why should you ruin yourself? <laughs> some people get a little too. So anyway, uh, Diablo, he accuses you to you. And that's how the whole meaning of not only your the new birth and confession of sins, you know, you have a reason to feel guilty if you haven't confessed the sins to God, and you may need, in some cases, to confess them to someone. But after that, you need to remember that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, and it's not God who's bringing it up again. Whatever you did in the fifth grade, <laughs> or whatever, you know. Uh, So, you know, so he accuses you to you. But more importantly, he accuses God to you. That's probably the most important one. So I'm going to kind of go for three, one, two in the order here. The most important one is in Genesis 3. Remember when he tempts Eve, he says, Indeed hath God said. So as any good reformed person knows, he first questions God's word. But then he goes a little deeper because God, the mouth speaks out of the abundance that calls, fills the heart, and he actually impugns God. And, you know, the woman gives, you know, she didn't quite give, like, cut his head off with a sword like Jesus does with the, when Satan quotes scripture to Jesus and misquotes it. He, he stabs him pretty good, right, direct what needs to be said. And Eve kind of beats around the bush. Well, you know, we're, we're allowed to eat of any tree, but not this one. You know, so, and she shouldn't have even been, uh, you know, she's starting to reason things out and, and see if his perspective is right. And then he takes it a step further and he says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, uh, you shall surely not die, but God knows in the day you eat of it. So he he t totally contradicts God's word. He, God said, you'll die the day you eat it, right? So he says, you won't die. <laughs> God's wrong. The word of God is wrong. And he then says the word of God is wrong because it's coming out of false motives. 
He says, God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. And that's what he's trying to keep you from. He's trying to keep you from something good that you need. You'll be like him, uh, knowing good and evil. And the Hebrew actually means determining for yourself what is good and evil. In other words, you'll be God from now on in your own twisted, sinful, demonic imagination. That's where every fallen man is at. You, if you really listen to the scuttlebutt and the chatter of people, they all are full of, like, opinions. And it's, it's, there's almost this correlation. The least amount of knowledge, wisdom, experience they have, the more uh, dogmatic and assured and cocky are their opinions. Everyone knows you kind of go through that, especially at adolescence, you know, like, you know everything when you're a teenager, <laughs> right? Right? And every one of us has been tempted to, to go down that road, right? So he, Satan is basically saying, God is, is, God is evil. God's wanting to keep you from being God yourself. Because if you really go back and analyze his own fall, how could he have fallen? He worships God. He's one of the three archangels, and in him are beautiful musical instruments, Ezekiel 28 and so forth. And he's progressing in beauty from glory to glory because that's what happens when you worship until the thought begins to enter his heart. Maybe God's not eternal. Maybe he just got here first. Maybe he evolved first. And that's where evolution was born, in the heart of Satan before man was ever created. And maybe he's just telling me he is and was and always will be and that he's just outside and above time and that I'm a creature created at a point in time to keep me from being God myself. And his emphasis changes from obedience and submission and worship to God to uh, wanting to be God. And thus is the temptation of every human being on the planet. The, the, the questioning of God's moment. Every fallen person actually has ideas about God suppressed in their spirit, Romans 1, Romans 3, and those are accusations about God. He's trying to, if you become a Christian, it won't be fun. Honestly, that was a big, when I was a teenager, one of the big hindrances to me find, becoming a Christian was like, Oh my God, all the Christians I know are over 40 and they have skinny brown ties. I didn't know I was going to be over 60 someday. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, and, and heaven is going to be really bad, boring, and terrible. <laughs> all the fun people are going to hell. <laughs> that's like, that's kind of like, there's lots of rock songs that have that message in it, right? And stuff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, simple, easy deceptions to see through if you know the Lord, but. Blindness is blindness. When you're blind, you're incredibly blind. And so Satan is the acute, the slanderer is the accuser. He slanders God to you. I know young ladies, I know young that young men who struggle with, oh my God, if I stay faithful to God and stay in this in, in a covenant community and so forth, and how am I ever going to find the right kind of mate? They, you know, they're, they're all tempted to date, and then some worldly person starts knocking on their door, and they want to go date them. 
oldest trick in the book. For, that's why 1 Corinthians 7 says, remain in the condition and the calling in which you're called. Meaning, when you first come to Christ, wait till you're really well-founded in Christ before you, before you change the big lifetime change. If you marry the wrong person, that's it. You'll never quite hit the fullness of God's call. Now, things can be redeemed, and thank God for that. But, uh, you know, if you, if you get committed to the wrong covenant community of Christians, you missed it. Because that will determine how, what you see and what you understand and the level of your wisdom and, and so forth. The, you know, the, the big issue. So he accuses God, and you get the thoughts that God's trying to keep you from something. What he's trying to keep you from is, is being your own God. And that's really what the serpent is saying. You'll be as God, not just knowing. The, the Hebrew means you're going, to deter, you're going to be the one who chooses good and evil. I was actually talking to a very troubled guy today who called me. He calls me all the time for advice. and Just for one of the unfortunately off the charts troubled kind of hurting guy. And he's telling me that God has shown him he's supposed to do this and that, and God's always showing him this and that, and half the stuff God shows him contradicts what God already showed him. But, uh, you know, and uh, so uh, he's like, if God told you all those things, God must be really messed up. He's schizophrenic. For... <laughs> so obviously he's not telling you all that stuff. But anyway, I said, would you like some advice on that? And it was classy. He goes, no, I don't really want any. <laughs> And uh, and that's really the essence of fallen man's nature. I don't want God's opinion, and I don't want it to come through Scripture. I don't want it to come by the Holy Spirit, and I don't want it to come through accountable leadership in my life. Thirdly, the accuser of the brethren uh, uh, accuses leaders, and especially the leaders God wants to use in your life. Now, I kind of got there. That should have been number two. Number one should have been uh, <laughs> accusing God. Number three should be uh, that he accuses you to yourself. But in any way, they're all three true, so I don't know that you have to put them in a hierarchy. But because his goal is to, is to oppose you becoming Christ-like, and centering in on knowing the heart and ways and will and mind of God. And so um, he's going to accuse whoever God wants to use in your life, you're going to have spiritual warfare trying to keep you from listening to them. Now, Satan is clever. He doesn't always just come to thoughts in your head. One of the things you have to get through is God, Satan will actually come to you through other members of the body of Christ. Sometimes through your good Christian parents. So how do you know the difference? Well, here's what, if you're seeking God's will, you'll, you'll find there's always some people who you're supposed to be accountable to, and they'll be okay with it. But if you don't have some people who think you're wrong and I don't like what you're doing, you know, <laughs> Stephen Leopold was like, 
talking to some other Christians who know a little bit about us, but don't really know us. And, and uh, the guy, one of their leaders said, watch out for that church because Greg's not very loving. <laughs> he doesn't know, maybe that's true, but I mean, no, he doesn't know enough to know that. And all he's doing is, is being foolish enough to be used of the adversary as his mouthpiece. You know what? If people tell you about this or that Christian and I don't like this or that movement or so forth, let me just give you something that will give you some spiritual discernment. Find out if those people, they're responsible for those people. Because they're not going to have grace to know who those people really are and what they're doing if they're, if they're not the one that's responsible for them. One of the things you'll notice we're very, very meticulous about is we speak a lot about movements and ideas that are going on in the body of Christ. We never speak about individual ministries. Because who are we to stretch our hand against the Lord's anointed? As Paul says... To his own master, he falls or rises. And I, if I'm not in charge of them, I woe is me if I criticize them. Now, again, ideas, movements, trends, yes, but not personalities, not people who have a call of God on their life. You're actually just reaping judgment to yourself when you criticize other leaders in the body of Christ. Because you're cooperating with the principle of Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren. He opposes all God-raised-up leadership. You won't find me talking. You know, that's one of the principles we want to follow in Rock Campus Fellowship. We will always have some people who are very involved who belong to other churches, and some people very involved who belong to our church. And there's no reason ever to speak negative of their church, especially if it falls within the bounds of they can say the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. In other words, if they're Orthodox, if they're Trinitarian, um, you know, if they believe in the dual nature of Christ, etc., some of the major doctrines covered in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, then don't criticize their leadership. Again, we could back off and say, well, you know, Anglicans do it this way and Reformed Baptists do it that way as a general, you know, and study history. But we're not against any particular Anglicans or Reformed Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists or uh, whatever you want, Baptists and on and on. And nor would we ever be. Because to their own master they fall or rise, and woe is us to stretch our hand. You know, when God had departed from Saul, David was still unwilling to raise up his voice or, or, or to raise up a physical attack on Saul. And when he went so far as to cut a little piece of his robe off, his conscience smote him for not doing it. Now that's huge because Satan wants to accuse leadership. Now, I want to zero in on this. And I, I kind of said this because I, I, I don't know if I want to put this on the CD or not. But, you know, I'm kind of having a difficult time, frankly, right now in my life. And, I've got, and, and I have been for several months. And I think I've got some solutions. But uh, 
something I've never stressed in our church, and I guess I want to, you you know, you're here tonight because you're a little closer to me and we get, and so forth. So I don't know if I want to put this on our podcast. Um, I've never asked for much prayer, but I probably am mistaken to not have asked that. I'm just afraid in our day and age that people, and it is funny, uh, Friday nights and stuff, whenever we have prayers, we get, I, there's the certain people actually will pray for Jason and Carla and their ministry, and then they'll pray for John and Emily, and no one ever prays for Catherine and I, That's, which is, I guess, okay, except for here's this. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Satan wants to separate you from whoever you're supposed to follow. You know, uh, in fact, let's turn to 1 Timothy 2. Well, I'll just quote it, but you know, Paul says that, uh, first of all then, and I, I, I like the uh, phrase, first of all, in other words, this, this is right, this is really important. I urge that entreaties, prayers, and petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, if you... Uh, look at Matthew 21 through 25, which really should be kind of read as one chapter. Right in the middle of it, when Jesus, um, when he's pronouncing the final sanctions on Israel, he says, you will not see me again. In other words, you'll always be blind and imperceptive of who I am. Until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that's important because every, all through your life, you're going to have uh, a certain experience of life in God. And at, once you become a Christian, you're on a journey out of darkness into light, out of deception into progressive sanctification, which includes progressive truth and insight and wisdom, out of not really knowing the Bible to really getting it. You're on that journey, and we're all at various places in that journey. But God will send people to you, and your response to him is your response to them. In fact, this may, again, I don't know if I should put this on the internet. This may seem a little nutty, but you know what? I knew Logan since he was 7 or 8, or 7th or 8th grade, I mean, uh, probably 10, 12, or 13, 14, something like that. And... Uh, it was always clear that God had brought him here. But his parents opposed that. He didn't get that and so forth. And Logan never really started zeroing in on the purpose of God for his life until uh, a year ago or so when he realized that. After eight years of not seeing that. It's that huge. You know, what was Lot's mistake? Lot's mistake was, everybody misunderstands Abraham. You hear all this nonsense today where Abraham was an idol-worshiping pagan, and God knocked on his door and said, follow me, right? That's ridiculous. Okay, For, after Cain killed Abel, God gave Adam and Eve another son called Seth, 
And from that point on, there was the Seth line in the earth, and there was the Cain line in the earth. And the Cain people did not know God and were constantly full of wickedness. Uh, and Han um, Noah was descended from Shem. And Abraham was descended from Noah. And uh, Moses' father-in-law was descended from that line. There were always some people who knew Yahweh before they they because even Paul makes it clear that that which is known about God is evident within them there are some people who had a uh, an ability to open up to what theologians call general revelation and had enough understanding that there was one God and they didn't know much about that one God but they were followers of the one God and if you read the text carefully you'll notice it was actually Abraham's father who started the journey but then he stopped in Haran, and uh, and God had to call Abraham after the death of his father to continue the journey. And his nephew Lot goes with him. And Abraham, when it talks about his servants and so forth, they weren't like conquered slaves. These were Abraham was a teacher of Yahweh. He was an evangelist of Yahweh, and those who traveled with him were the followers of Yahweh that he was discipling. And they became servants of the community he was building. And God so, because, not because of Abraham, but because of God's choice, Abraham became so prosperous that the land as they traveled nomadically began to have difficulty supporting them. You know, it's, you know, like if you're a nomad and, and you have a few sheep, that's one thing. But if you have so many sheep and goats and camels and so forth that we need like 10 square miles, it's a little harder to move along. You know, uh, can you guys just vacate your cities and stuff because we're passing through? So the land began to have trouble supporting him. So Lot's servants basically started saying, hey, Abraham's people are getting preferential treatment. So Abraham did a very similar thing to what Elijah did to Elisha. The day Elisha, Elijah was to be taken up into heaven, he kept saying to Elijah, get out of here. Go. I'm going to heaven today. Forget it. You don't need. I'm done with you. Go home. And Elisha was, kept understanding are you kidding? I followed you. I've washed your hands. I've served you. I so forth. I'm staying with you to the very end. And it's because he did that he got the double portion of Elijah's mantle out of all the years of serving. That's what Joshua did with Moses. But Lot did the wrong thing. Lot basically said, okay. And he lifted up his eyes and he chose a geographical area based on its lushness and plushness with no respect to who the people were or the covenantal relationships he had with Abraham and the purposes of God. And we all know the rest of the story. It ended badly for Lot, even worse for his wife, and bad for him and his daughters. Right? So... Um, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. I don't know if I should have done a whole teaching on this. How am I doing for time? All right, so I'll have to. What Jesus says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can be a member of our church, 
But at a certain time, God might send another Christian to have a word of corrective to you. Now, if it's God, it'll bear witness to the Scripture, to the Holy Spirit, and to the leadership you're accountable to. You know, the thing Deanna went through recently has been really good. God brought her into RCF, and after a while, she began to realize she's supposed to be part of GCF and so forth. But um, interestingly, uh, her uh, parents and her pastor have no problem with that. There's other people, let's just say, who might have not been so thrilled. <laughs> and that's, that's part of how God will test you. You need to not put the same amount of weight on everybody's opinion. If you're following God, you will always have some people who follow you, some people who respect you but they would never follow you, and some people who are your outright critics. And it's your critics that get give, give you a lot of benefit. <laughs> Because, you know, it's important to make sure your critics are actually not right. And you can't despise that process. So, with that in mind, I just want to say, um, you know, it's not something we've emphasized a lot in our church, but here's what, I, here's what I would like to encourage you to do. First and foremost, pray for my wife and I, more than anyone else in, our, in, our, in your prayers. Secondly, Pray for the other elders. Thirdly, pray God will raise up more elders. We are vulnerable to accusations from Satan. Uh, there's a thing called nepotism. And nepotism is when you favor your own children and family members in terms of offices and so forth. And we don't have my son-in-law and my son as elders because, believe me, I am begging God year after year after year, raise some guys up that we can cut, make deacons or elders out of. But they've got to have the character. They've got to have the experience. They've got to have the consistency. They've got to have the knowledge. We can't compromise that just because we're afraid of what people might say. Uh, but, you know, in fact, if you notice, more people are staying more now that we have like 50 people coming because when you have 20 people coming led by uh, three elders that are all the same family, people actually just jump to the conclusion. Oh, this is ingrown. This is, they're just the leaders because of they're the pastor's sons. Now what's amazing about how God has put this thing together is Jason, John and I and our wives could not be further apart <laughs> as far as our temperaments and our ways of seeing things. And actually, it's been, you know, in other words, I, we just don't see eye to eye very easily about anything because of our different strengths and weaknesses and giftednesses. And what's been kind of great is we've been actually able to fight in a, in a kind of way that you'd probably have to be elders together quite a few years because you, you could fight as intensely as we do sometimes. <laughs> and uh, because there's no disrespect, but there's passionate opinions. And we, for somehow, God and His sovereignty gave us very diverse uh, giftednesses. But you know, a big deal for Grace Christian Fellowship is we we need. I I probably think that in two or three years, um, 
with John having passed me in Bible knowledge and so many, well, whatever, you know, whatever. We can, the point is, in two or three years, I could easily leave and uh, John and Jason can handle it without me. But where we need to be is that we have a team of people who are qualified to be leaders in Xenia. Now, you know, one of the reasons I have Sam lead a little worship and so forth whenever he can, and I hope that he's really pressing into uh, not just tinkering around with the guitar, but actually learning, you know, getting out and studying techniques, maybe paying a guy for lessons, all those kind of things is because we need more worship teams. Not just for home groups and kids rock and so forth. We need to start a church that focuses on Xenia to Cedarville. And we need to focus, start one that focuses on Columbus. And those need to produce the leaders. Okay, so when you're you're praying this summer, pray that God will bring people to right state. And that whether it's through a flyer or through going to around at the tables and sharing the gospel and so forth that have calls of God on their life to be leaders in our movement. Rock Campus Fellowship needs, you know, Jason is a full-time guy with full-time elders. You know, we need someone qualified to just be full-time doing Rock Campus Fellowship. You know, you always hear about Dayton New Covenant Fellowship, but, you know, um, I left seven years after I started. You know, we've, we're in much harder times with much more diff- difficult people come with more bigger problem sets and putting their lives back together is a much longer process. And I'm comfortable with all that. And we started on purpose with troubled people in the inner city and all their you know, we know, and it took, you know, I was able to be, because I was young and didn't have kids. And even with my wife, just working, I was able to be full-time from the beginning back then, whereas now I've just now gone full-time and recently in our church. Um, So there's lots of reasons why we've gone off the ground slowly, but the truth is um, each of the campus ministries had leadership teams of five to seven people who were very qualified And that's what, you know, that's what I want you to pray that God will raise up a leadership team at Rock Campus Fellowship. This is something you should be, you know, these are practical takeaways now. Uh, that we could have a household of brothers near the campus. That we could have a household of young ladies. That none of them would have one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord. That none of them would be tempted to court members of the opposite, you know, non-Christians of the opposite sect. That none of them would... Uh, have serious educational problems so that they couldn't really kind of study apologetics and biblical studies and things like that on a, on a university kind of level. Because we're not going to be effective at campus ministry in, unless we're, you know, better scripture knowledge and all that. That's part of what this summer is about. And that's why the theology class, we're trying to pull things up. Uh, so Pray that God will bring people from both the United States and other countries that are called to these things. In other words, um, you know, there are some people who wisely pray for their future spouse and their future kids. (laughs) We need to be praying for our future leaders that God already knows about. 
I believe Anvesh was an answer to such prayers. God bring us, I'm actually praying, God bring us other guys who are called to be on fire for God that speak Telugu and are from Hyderabad or Andhra Pradesh or Telangana. Really, I pray that now all the time because if God wants us to start a church in, in uh, Hyderabad, wouldn't it be a whole lot easier if we have three or four or five guys who can speak Telugu and love Jesus and, and Anvesh has a whole team? <laughs> we can call them the Anveshites. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't think so, Tim. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, the followers of Anvesh, no, How, the followers of Jesus. I, you know, I don't even know if Anvesh has the exact gifts to set that he'd be the head guy of the team, but he certainly has a lot of the things going that we need in him that we would need for team members. We need more guys, frankly, that have that have the qualities inside them that you would need to be leadership teams. You know, all Jason is capable of is doing, working with Bob and, and Deanna and whoever else he's working with to keep us a registered group, which I hope you're doing that now, aren't you? But whatever. But talk to me later about it. But make sure you are. And that we have like a Thursday night meeting and we have a play in that. But what we really, what this is all about is we need a whole bunch of people sharing the gospel and knowing how to disciple and knowing how to form a disciple. And I want you to start getting the practice this year, but hopefully this, this group will be uh, three times this size next summer, at least. Because, you know, Jason can provide that little bit of a wineskin, but he can't really work the harvest, right? And frankly, the reason I invited Sam and Logan here, uh, because, uh, thank you, even though they need a lot more development academically and scripturally and all this kind of stuff, is because if they can learn to do it at right state, then they could go do it at Ponnets or Stivers or Belmont. And if they continue to have as good a friendship as they have so that they can, and hopefully God adds one, two, or three more good guys to their team, we can grow this thing. But pray for, especially start with praying for the leadership. Okay, because you don't know, and like you're going to know someday, how much Satan focuses his attempts at, at leaders. He just does. And you really need to understand that principle that if God wants to use someone in your life to that degree, you're going to have accusations against them because he's the accuser of the brethren. And let me say with that too, that you have to therefore nip it in the bud. Let's say, uh, let's say our good friend Steve Woodman says something to Bob and they're talking and so forth, and it hurts Bob's feelings. That could happen, even though they've been friends for a long time and he probably knows Steve's heart to a lot more than I do and so forth. So, Hebrews 12, 11, 12, 15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up, and by it many be defiled. You know, I'll be quite honest with you. There are people who are not, <laughs> that I'm not encouraging to come here this summer and learn this stuff, who are members of our church, because they can never get their attitude straight about me and Catherine. 
And therefore, I could never raise them up into any significant ministry. Um, you know, and really, you can sense loyalty in people's hearts, or you can sense flattery. There's a difference. So, if uh, a day or two after a conversation that Bob has with Steve Woodman, he Bob begins to realize, you know, that kind of hurt my feelings or whatever. What's he supposed to do? Matthew 6, Matthew 8, he needs to go to talk to Steve. And it doesn't, you can't, like, if you're still going to fall into, well, I can't talk to him because he's a leader. I can't stop him because he's on the wrong, <laughs> Revelation 13, he's on the wrong page because he's an authority. That's wrong. <laughs> That's just nonsense. He can go, Steve, it, now, this is, hopefully I got enough time to finish this. Paul tells this to Timothy. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father. Like if Bob were to go to Steve Woodman and go, Steve, you really messed up when you said such and such. And, you know, frankly, you need to get your theology a little better. And I, I think you have a bad attitude. Uh, Steve wouldn't do this. But if, if, if I heard about it, I'd probably just slap Bob around <laughs> in Jesus' name. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I'm just kidding. But uh no, but he should say, Steve, it seemed to me like you were saying this, and it kind of hurt my feelings. I'm here more to make sure I don't get a hurt and a root of bitterness growing up. I, I need some help with this. Right? But to get the idea that Steve could never be wrong or I could never be wrong or whatever, that's not true. You don't get an accusation. Paul says don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That means even in your heart. But you can go to, to get the wound healed. Don't let it grow to an accusation unless that what comes out of the conversation is you can't seem to get past it and you eventually need to go, as Jesus said, get two or three more and, and talk it out, right? So hopefully this helps, but... The main key is a lot of our focus has to be that God has predestined and foreknown people from all eternity. And he's, there are people that he's called to be with us. And, uh, it, whatever, and if, the, if he has, he, we need to pray that God will bring them to right state, that they'll be qualified academically to stay for four years, and uh, they won't flunk out. And that we will meet them through our various efforts, and they'll have the ears to hear and, and join us. Amen.